Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. It's so good to be with you. Today, we will delve into hard choices families face in the rehabilitation and spinal cord injury world, and ones that might be surprising to you. You might hope you are never faced with having to make a Sophie's choice. But today, you will travel with me as Archer was face-to-face -face with such a choice. Whether SCI or traumatic event in your life, we will also explore the role of grief as part of the treatment plan or not as we work our way to recovery and trauma healing. Stay tuned for new insights and empathy for a teenager faced with an untenable decision. that our podcast sponsor, the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. And Blink of an Eye is on social media. You can find out more about the Blink of an Eye initiatives, trauma healing, new episodes, and more. Blink of an Eye is servicing spinal cord injury families in the crisis hours and days immediately following injury, when their lives are turned upside down potentially forever. Hear about the Blink of an Eye cutting-edge relational approaches to trauma healing, medical navigation, and emotional and spiritual support. If you are interested in volunteering or becoming part of the Blink of an Eye support teams in any way, fill out an information form at www.blinkofaneye.org. You can also follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and on Facebook at the URL facebook.com slash www.blinkofaneye.org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 17, Choices in the Unknown. Today, in the Blink of an Eye origin story, we pick up at the Shepherd Center in a situation where I felt the tension was mounting as I straddled what seemed to be a widening crack that I could not understand in the world of rehabilitation. Archer was still fighting day by day to breathe, even with the aid of a ventilator and suctioning and a lung machine. We're going to take a deep dive today into a day that seemed to present unfathomable choices that I could not understand about what appeared to be the limits of rehabilitation. 
but what I believe rested on a deeper set of principles and what seemed to be a limited mindset of what rehabilitation could be or include. But I had so much to learn and understand. The feelings that went along with the shock that Archer had been put in a position of having to choose between something as primal as the potential to breathe and as essential as body mobility were burning deep under the surface as I was trying to keep it all together. Perhaps you have been in a similar situation. Okay, maybe not about breathing and spinal cord injury, but other life choice points that seem wickedly narrow, incomplete, not right. There was little time to process this, nor were there any built-in quality decision-making processes, honestly like what I was used to. As a transformative relational mediator, we talk to get clear and make good decisions working with a neutral but there was nothing, and there was no one at Shepherd for a young adult like Archer, or a parent like me, to talk with, to get full information, and to work through these twisted choice points to explore them fully before committing, one way or the other, to such an unfathomable choice. In hindsight, it would have saved us a lot of pain and been better for the Shepherd Center as well had there been such a person or process like an informed neutral to talk with and work it through. But there were fellow travelers along the path, other families at Shepherd, not necessarily on the exact same journey, but on the same path of feeling helpless and confused, not even knowing what you do not know, grieving monumental loss, and not knowing what is next, just doing the best you can. You may remember in episode 16 hearing about Margaret Apple when she and her husband Ed took me out for a frozen fast food margarita, an unexpected blessing at a time when Ed and Margaret needed me. But it was I who needed Margaret, and Ed too. We will open today's episode hearing from Margaret herself and her side of the story seven years later, a viewpoint I had never imagined. So sit back, relax, take in a deep breath, and tune in to your presence and allow the truths you hear today to resonate in your body and in your being. Here we go. personal journal note. I am looking through photos Archer's friends are sending me as I sit bedside to him. 
soccer, and football games are happening in Baltimore and young athletes are praying at these events, openly taking a knee or making an announcement at the games to pause for Archer Semft, that he be able to breathe. Archer Strong, yes, Lord, for breath. Archer Strong, yes, Lord, for every person wearing a green rubber wristband bearing the message, pray for Archer, Archer Strong. Please, hold each one of those supporters close to you. They are holding us close, and we need them so much. Personal Journal Note I've been reflecting on the truly unforeseeable situation we are in. 30 days in the Atlantic Care ICU, and now 31 days into our time at the Shepherd Center, with only 12 of those days being out of their ICU intensive care unit. We were supposed to have been off the ventilator in three days. We were supposed to be stars at this rehab center for adolescent athletes. But we seem to be at a crossroads. I don't know how it has come to this, Lord. Please hold us. Our care team presented Archer potential paths forward that as I felt it, depending on what he chose, could have consequences, even negative consequences for how long he would be able to stay shepherd. I couldn't tell exactly, as I feel so uninformed and as if we're in the dark. But I feel it. I feel that we are being given a choice that might have negative consequences for how far Archer progresses in rehabilitation here. I'm under the impression that we would have four to six weeks. But I heard it said even two or three months here at Shepherd if Archer progresses. And then we would go home rehabilitated Archer would go back to school this fall, or at the latest, the end of this semester. This time is the time. We have to maximize it. We're lucky to be here. Shepherd is the place to be. Archer Semft is going to walk again, and this is the place to get him walking again. Here at Shepherd. We can't blow it. We can't waste it. We have to make sure we do nothing that would jeopardize Archer staying at the Shepherd Center for as long as he possibly can to make our dream and their promise a reality. But the choices they just gave Archer or just not to be believed. They were asking him to choose, to choose between breathing and 
rehab? They said he had a finite amount of energy and he had to choose how to spend it. On breathing independently of the ventilator or continuing with physical therapy to gain some arm mobility. I can't understand this choice. According to his counselor, Archer cannot tackle both. He has to make priorities. What are the other? How can this be? He can do both. It's untenable to make him choose one or the other. My God, how cruel to ask him this. He's also just a boy. How short-sighted all seems to me. How unimaginative, how uncreative. Ask a person if they want to breathe or not. You can't make a person choose if they want to breathe or not. Of course he wants to breathe. It just takes time. He's a fighter. He can work on breathing and do rehab. Why can't they see that? We're here for him to walk. And he's just a boy. He has a full life ahead of him. Don't make him choose. I don't understand why the rehab cannot be for the strengthening of his lungs. I talked with the pulmonologist. He told me Archer needs a diaphragmatic pacemaker to move his intercostal muscles around his rib cage. It would then move his lungs because of the very little innervation Archer has left from his severed spinal cord. But he can't do a diaphragmatic pacemaker, he said, because of the heart pacemaker they already put in. Yet Shepard says, should have never been put in. But how were we to know? And they say they can't help Archer if he can't breathe on his own because it takes him too much time. But he can with help on a workaround for his muscles. I begged them. Personal journal note. I went to the library upstairs and I looked up intercostal muscles. They can be strengthened with exercises and breathing. But why couldn't we do the exercises? Why couldn't that be his rehab and then 
once he's stronger, we work on his arms. It's a both, not an or. I don't understand. It's just a sequencing issue. Not a one choice cuts off the other. Intercostal muscles first, then arm mobility, then walking. But that is not as Shepard sees it. But I honestly don't know how Shepard sees it because no one really tells us. We only had the counselor who told Archer he had to make a decision. I feel we're just groping in the dark. It was a true Sophie's choice to me, and it was painful. When Archer's counselor had presented the choice earlier this week, Archer, with his head bowed low, covered in sweaty white hospital-grade hand towels, and with his deeply set eyes, now with dark rings around them, exhausted by the lung suctionings over the last two months, looked up, whispered, and nodded very resolutely, I want to breathe on my own. And here we have now sat, seemingly abandoned, for three days with no rehabilitation, no anything, like he's forgotten. We never had a chance to get our questions answered about what Archer's decision would mean. I was increasingly finding myself at odds with Archer's counselor. The way she framed the choice, it was as though Archer needed to rest to work on his lungs. But it also felt like he was being penalized for not eating a bunch of junk to give him more calories to burn. She suggested he go on a narcotic to speed him up, make him hungry. I asked how many calories they expected him to take in. And she said, like 12,000 to 15,000. Day. 15,000 calories a day? And he has a peg feeding tube? And he's barely able to whisper? Are you kidding me? Why didn't someone tell us that last week? My heart also ached archer's overworked body that was losing not only muscle mass but weight daily 
but I had a strong sense that a different approach could integrate all of what felt like these disparate parts of this rehabilitation program. I mean, I could see that Archer was not the typical come to Shepherd for rehab adolescent quadriplegic. I also thought that surely he was not the only person with quadriplegia who was what they called slow to wean, which they said as if Archer had a weakness of some sort. Well, that's how it sounded when they said that. But why couldn't Archer's physical rehabilitation program be focused on strengthening the muscles around his lungs? I wanted to know that. And why couldn't mental health therapy be included to talk to him about grief? Wasn't there somebody other than this counselor? Who was this counselor anyway? But I couldn't get any answers. And in truth, I was so afraid of rocking the boat and having them give up on Archer. But all they could see for his physical therapy was to get him into the gym for some arm function. And all his counselor had wanted to talk about the few times she was scheduled to see Archer was sex and sexual identity. At least that's what Archer told me. And why he didn't think he wanted to go as he hung his head lower and lower in exhaustion. I was plagued wondering about the potential connection between the way Archer was injured, that he drowned and took in all that water into his lungs, blacked out, and how that trauma might be impacting his breathing, psychologically and emotionally, not just the bacteria and the punctured lungs. I mean, surely the experience, I mean, he had punctured lungs from holding his breath so long and so hard that both lungs blew a hole in them. That panicky, fearful memory he must have until the last breath of air left his lungs. Couldn't that be a barrier to his breathing and getting off the ventilator? Why couldn't the counselor see that? Or at least explore that? Was it so far-fetched? He so wanted to live. Personal journal note. Why can't counseling and breath work work together? I wonder how much more healing can happen if Shepard were to see this. Why can't they? They are the masters, but they are blind to Archer's potential and blind 
the obvious barrier. I know his potential. Why can't we remove the barrier? Everything I learned from this journey with Archer and the many medical situations is now carried into the work of the Blink of an Eye nonprofit and the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation. So much of the support work we are providing now to spinal cord injury families in the first 30 days of crisis following injury has been informed by these experiences and similar experiences of other parent spinal cord injury navigators who did not have the information they needed about SCI, about the ICU, and about rehabilitation options. The Blink of an Eye team takes a listen-first approach through a trauma-informed lens, like a transformative mediator offering more integrative support and opportunities for quality interaction and decision-making and long-term healing. So much of the shaping of the Blink of an Eye family support and navigation team was developed in response to what seemed impossible and oftentimes infuriating conditions we had to work through ourselves. So many families in a time of crisis and grief are also put in the difficult position of having to make choices about their loved one's future when the medical silos are not coordinated and thus they do not have the information they need or the best possible chance to make the best possible choices about managing their loved one's pain when the only options presented are opioids or having to negotiate between different therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, speech therapists, and mental health therapists, who sometimes seem to have little or no communication and common plan for care and emotional healing of their patients. And rarely is there a person on staff in ICUs and rehab facilities who has expertise in trauma and trauma-informed care. While Shepard was well-coordinated on the physical rehab plan for arm strengthening, we experienced the disconnect with mental and emotional support as well as pulmonary expertise as our time at the Shepherd Center lengthened. Even world-class centers have much potential to live into regarding trauma and trauma healing approaches for the family system. In those early days of October 2015, I had flickers of awareness that I was also experiencing time in a new way. Not exactly that I was losing track of time, but more that I was entering time in a physically different way. Perhaps this was the impact as well of the trauma, grief, 
and yes, exhaustion too. That was changing my entire perception of my surroundings. It's really quite astounding how humans can navigate through crisis. Indeed, designed to manage through crisis in four distinct ways because of the way we are wired to stay alive. Isn't it just so miraculous how our brains and our bodies do that? How without any conscious effort, our brains take a completely overwhelming experience and respond in the way that most likely keeps us safe. We fight, we flee, we freeze, we collapse, or some combination. And if it's fight, it can look like hypervigilance and being on, or braced and highly alert. While our bodies store the shock of the overwhelming experience to our central nervous systems, often tucking that shock away into a place somewhere deep within in one of our organs so that we can keep on fighting. We store those experiences because they are too much for our central nervous systems to process in those moments. Too much to take in. Impossible to truly understand. Not enough time or space to digest while life or death decision making is at hand. But the shock and the overwhelm continue to reside in the body until we have the capacity to revisit it at a later time and to gently loosen the grip of what has been locked up for a long time, energetically driving us in an impulsive or automatic kind of way, subconscious, unconscious. We think of trauma as something scary, something to avoid, something to get rid of. And yes, in many ways, those are healthy goals. And I don't want to pretend like I or anyone should bypass the impact of trauma and jump right to the hidden blessings when a person is going through something traumatic. Trauma shapes us for the rest of our lives. And if we're lucky enough to experience trauma with support, emotional, financial, adrenal, spiritual, we can lessen not the trauma itself, but the lingering ravages of unhealed traumatic energy. This is also where a belief in the divine source can carry us if we can trust in God and the divine nature of our bodily design, that we are designed in the image of perfection and designed in ways for us to enjoy and to withstand being fully human. It is truly miraculous that we have this innate neurological, biological wiring 
to compartmentalize and encapsulate traumatic experiences without even consciously thinking of it so that we can survive and function and live that day. And we are given the invitation to come back to these experiences later, supported in integrative ways, so we can tap into the old, lingering, stored energy and metabolize it in new ways, in small, digestible amounts to be restored to health and well-being, so we can then not just survive, but move forward more freely to live fully another day. I knew this back then. I had been teaching this back then. And I had an intuitive sense that that trauma blockage was related to Archer's inability to breathe. But it was not an understanding recognized by the Shepherd Center. We all have blind spots. I had one too, even with all my understanding of trauma and conflict. I failed to see the toll that would be taken from the trauma shock of Archer's injury on my health. Because in my tunnel vision to keep Archer alive, I could not entertain in my mind anything less than Archer Semt being able to walk again. And so there we were, just out of the Shepherd ICU, living each day with all of its intensity and grief and uncertainty, groping to understand what we had to do and what was expected. Sometimes it felt like too much to handle, too much for any one person or even any one family to sustain. Highly compartmentalized from hospital room to rehab gym to life outside to life back at home. But more often, it just felt like, don't stop, keep on moving. Keep on moving. Stop, drop, and pray, and keep on moving. Like Dory in the movie Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. And as you already know, we were not the only family in such a situation. You may remember from episode 16, Margaret and Ed Apple. They were a couple I met in those days at Shepherd. A friend of Margaret's had connected her to a friend of mine who had given her my text number, and she had reached out. But it was Ed who, about the same time, had quietly asked me if I would meet with them and talk with his wife, who he told me was struggling with the uncertainty about their son, Edward, who had suffered a traumatic brain injury and was still unconscious at the time on the TBI unit at Shepherd. You might recall 
we made the choice to meet with each other back then. And well, I had the opportunity to interview Margaret all these years later and ask if she remembered that time. Here are some excerpts of that conversation. Right when I first saw you, I thought, I know this woman. <laughs> and I think we do know each other. I think so. And it was uh, Big Edward, Ed, who was really our matchmaker. Um, he, when he, when I first saw him and I was praying and he said, would you come and meet my wife and talk to my wife? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you, something that you sent me in that email or, or told me that I, I never knew that that was how we got together. I think I thought I texted you maybe or and then you something. did. You did. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. and, and, um, and also that got me thinking about how differently Ed and I think or do things. I would have reached out to you because I wanted to reach out to you because of what you were going through. And he was doing it about me. It sounded like. I thought it was, it was. And mm -hmm. for me, it was mm -hmm. so beautiful because he so cared deeply about your well-being at a time when, yeah. you know, we were crumpling. Um, yeah. Maybe yeah. not always seen on the outside, but I just okay. thought it was very beautiful and, and very tender. I think it's a really profound and insightful comment, Margaret, that you make about grieving and grief, that it really is this never over experience. And we were just thrown into the injury. And I don't even know if I was aware that I was grieving. I was worried about Archer, but I remember right. being worried about you because I couldn't imagine I could at least see and communicate with Archer. And you were not able to communicate with Edward. I know, and that was very hard, you know, having your loved one be unconscious for such a long time. And, um, you know, the person doesn't just wake up into consciousness. It takes a long time, and uh, sometimes they never get to full or full consciousness but I remember thinking she can talk to him his emotions and his feelings about how terrible this is are real and they're right there all the time y'all could not escape them and I on the other hand and my husband we were faced with it every day but Edward wasn't aware so there's some beauty in that too that isn't beautiful, but was also a positive. A little bit of a cushion around mm -hmm. him that he didn't have to also be bearing the weight of the grief of parents. 
Right. I, I, I guess so. Or the grief of just the loss of his personal life. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of um, Archer's just, you know, sudden realization of what life, how life has changed. Grief is so nuanced and complex and so very personalized to each situation. As it turned out, it was the grief Margaret was expressing that really brought us together. And as I listened, I was deeply moved. Back in the fast food place, she was very melancholic and I was moving into action on her behalf forming the prayer request for Edward of what was possible and helping her create an action plan for herself and what we could do together. As she and I sipped our margaritas and cried and talked and listened some more. But it was her grieving over Archer's potential awareness of his loss that was most tender to me as she did this amidst her own overwhelm. It was also her expressions of the loss of what could be or would be and all that seemed to be falling apart that didn't need to be explained to me. A grief for which there were no adequate words anyway that not only gave us the opportunity to connect but opened a crack in a small portal to a big emotion I had not allowed any expression of for myself, my own grief. I needed Margaret's doubt and uncertainty and lack of hope and even lack of faith to begin to shake loose the lock on my own deep grief, which was stored tightly tucked away somewhere in my body. I had no idea where and couldn't open as I suspect my body knew if I did. Back then, it might derail me. So I stayed focused on action steps but Margaret moved me deeply. Here's another excerpt of her memory after our first meeting. It was uh, a way of feeling that, okay, I'm gonna get a handle on this and I'm gonna figure out how to do this. And if she can do it, I'm gonna be able to do it sort of way, because I would say that is, what my knowing you sort of started for me, Mm. I think of just this woman and her husband and their family, they're going to put it back together. They're going to figure out a way to put it back together. And I'm going to do that too. I can do it if she can do it. Funny because Margaret and Ed thought they needed me 
Well, I needed them and still need them and other families in similar situations to know that there is somebody who has a similar experience, who understands to not have to explain, to just get each other at an almost cellular level of loss and change where everything is unknown about what we thought we knew of our dreams, our dreams for our children, our take-for-granted future dreams for our families. It was the first time for me on that lunch date I spent with Margaret, crying with her over her loss, that I may have had a glimmer of my own grief. But I was in fighting mode for Archer and not yet able to tend to that tender emotion or let that raging beast behind it out of its cage. But to know that there are others who already know about this grave loss and monumental change without having to expend any energy explaining it, whatever their dreams are or were, is to be linked together in a human bond that is very indelible. And there are many responses to that loss, many paths of trauma healing. For me then, my path was to stay focused on the belief that nothing on this earth is permanent. Living fully into joy and knowing pain shall pass and that all things are possible in God's time. Some of the most indelible bonds humans form with each other are those created from human tragedy, similar loss, shared failure, and overcoming and surmounting such setbacks together, unified. Hundreds of thousands of people are in groups bound together by such life experiences. Veterans, Navy SEALs, Mount Everest climbers, 9-11 survivors, child incest survivors, breast cancer survivors, Alcoholics Anonymous. Humans form bonds with each other in shared crisis and challenge, right? I mean, it's the basis of every support group, I imagine. We're wired to be relational with each other. And we can learn from each other. It was an awakening for me to see how Margaret and I were of service to each other, as similar as our experiences were, and as different and unique as they were and we were. We provided something to each other, something neither of us may have been fully aware of back then. But there's something else I want to share with you, <laughs> something that may surprise you that I came to learn. Margaret's son, Edward, made a full recovery. Yes, from his weeks in a coma and his traumatic brain injury that took him to Shepherd, he is walking, talking, and living life 
as he once knew it. My heart soared when I saw pictures of him in his tennis shorts. And I marveled. In this joy, Margaret shared another facet. Here is an excerpt. When I learned from you in probably one of the first Christmas cards that we exchanged with each other, and I think we texted a couple times, and I learned about Edward's recovery. <laughs> it just <laughs> took my breath away. Like, oh my gosh, I, I cannot tell you how happy I was. It's remarkable. Well, we are, of course, so thankful, right? We're so thankful that he he's truly gotten a second chance and he knows that and we know it, but it comes with a whole lot of, I don't know that guilt is the right word because I, I didn't do anything wrong and guilt usually is, has something to do with having done something wrong, but why did we get it? Why did we get the good stuff and other people aren't getting it? It's, that is really a hard thing. And it, that's almost never out of my mind, really. Really? It's always there. It's always there. I didn't want to send you a Christmas card. Really. Wow. Mm-hmm. Where do you find it's the courage then to send me a Christmas card? Um, I think yours probably came first. And I probably got down to the last one and thought, I want to reach out and touch her somehow but I don't know that it was a you know it it couldn't it it couldn't possibly feel great (sighs) thank you well I don't I still don't even know if it was the right thing (laughs) there when I saw him in his tennis shorts and you know tennis jersey I was just oh my god it's incredible. And it actually gave me so much hope. Well, we all need that. We, we do. Yeah. We do. I think it's important for us to talk about grief and to not forget that it's there, even when it might seem like a happy time. Yeah. That's the integration piece that they grief and joy and grief and gratitude can live side by side mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's profound. It is profound. And that is a new learning for me all these years later. I didn't know I had to compartmentalize so tightly to get by. Maybe you might consider a time in your life when your beautiful, miraculous brain protected you too by clamping down an overwhelming situation of loss 
and confusion and sadness and grief and stored it away so you could think and move forward. There is such a strong drive to stay alive and do what we need to do to keep those we love alive too. Here's a last excerpt for you. That's part of this whole grieving process. It's sort of never over. Um, And that's good. And it's also heavy. Yeah. It is, um, it is good to know that it's never over. I mean, that's the true marathon. It just kept hitting us how life had been completely transformed. Each step along the way and each new choice we were presented with was like a new fork in the road. Not sure which choice to make into the unknown many times, but knowing some would be sprints while others would be marathons. And we were never alone. Thank you, Apples, Margaret, and Ed, and Edward. Thank you for reaching out and finding me at the Shepherd Center. I had much to think about as I returned to my work in the Shepherd Conference Room that afternoon and waited for Archer to return from the Friday rehab outing. I had to go to the airport to pick up our oldest son, Pete, was coming in for the weekend to see Archer and help me. I texted Archer's friends, Basil and Jennings, who were due to arrive later this week for visits, and I gathered more of the cards and notes to put in a bag for them to read to Archer. I filled out the paperwork to submit to our homeowner association back in Baltimore to ask for approval to modify our home for Archer as I had a number of emails of generous people donating lumber and vinyl and ceramic tile. I wasn't sure what all to do about this coordination and how I would be able to manage it too, but I would figure it out. I drove to the airport to pick up Pete who flew in from Baltimore. It was so good to see him. All he had was his backpack but it's all he needed. It's funny how little we actually need on this journey. When we arrived back at Shepherd, Archer was being delivered back to his room, and I saw the tenderness in Pete's smile as he clumsily leaned over to hug Archer in the big power chair with all the tubing and contraptions. We caught Pete up on how to do the suctionings with the respiratory therapist and how it takes three of us now full time and how to stay alert, if he can, to anticipate when Archer will need a suction rather than waiting for the machines to alarm. I showed him where to turn the alarm button off and to go to the desk to let them know. I didn't know about the other settings, but I told him we do our best to create an environment for Archer so he can rest. He nodded. I also showed him the new technique of pinning Archer's arm down during the gruesome suctionings 
and how to monitor Archer's oxygen, and about the new exoflator machine they introduced to artificially inflate Archer's lungs. After an evening and another long night into the morning, with both of us as a team for Archer's all-night suctionings, I could see the disbelief on Pete's face. I could also feel the letdown of exhaustion setting in for me, knowing a strong backup had arrived. I knew Pete would be dedicated to Archer and not miss a beat. I left Shepard and walked out into the warm, dark night to return to the apartment that our UVA friend, Chris Killebrew, had given us to stay in, only blocks from Shepard. I hadn't been to it in days. It was around 4.45 a.m. when I walked across the dewy grass towards the large, empty condo complex. It was still pitch black, and there were no outdoor lights on as the building was still uninhabited, except for the one condo I had a key to. I relished the night air and the quiet as I inserted my key into the lock and heard the familiar click. I opened the door to walk across the dark, almost empty living room, headed toward the bathroom where I slipped off my clothes and took a long, hot shower in the dark. As the water pounded my back, I thought about laying my head on a bed for the first time in a couple days. As I stepped out of the shower into a robe one of the Atlanta angels had left for me, I felt oddly refreshed and not as tired as I thought. I had a lot on my mind and decided to write a family and friends update before climbing into bed. It was dawn when I finished and I prayed Pete would be able to hold down the suctionings if there were any more before I returned in a few hours. I knew Archer was in good hands because Pete had always been reliable and steady. I also knew it was a lot for Pete to witness and to be up and close to. As I thought about both of my boys, I felt sleep taking over and I turned off the bedside lamp. October 3rd, 2015, day 60, Saturday, early morning. I'll digress a moment to share with you an observation so you can take care of yourself, as I have had to slow down and take care of myself. As a mediator, very interested in understanding fully the conflict experience, we have three centers of intelligence that are affected by conflict, by trauma. Our mental center, heart center, and body center. Oh, I've seen what the negative emotional energy of conflict can do to people when it is stuffed or bypassed for years. It has the potential of ripping people apart 
on the insides and estranging them from others who care about them. But most importantly, those emotions when submerged in the system create the greatest fractures in our sense of self. And I believe our self and our contact with our spirit is what has harmed the most. So I've been thinking that a person like Archer, so healthy in every way, one moment doing what he loved most, cooking and creating, in a place he loved most, the beach club in Cape May, and in the next moment being rendered immovable and helpless, floating head down in the ocean waves, would be at real risk, not so much for having his anger turn inward into self-loathing, which I think could happen, but not so much for Archer, but for having his grief turn inward into isolation. And here is Archer, the boy and young man who would fondly call the Renaissance man, an athlete, scholar, an artist, a musician, a cook. What do we say to a boy like Archer now? We will listen to what he has to say to us. I did tell him that I think his injury has brought about different kinds of gifts, and he will have to discover them. I promised him they were there, and I told him I thought one gift was hope, and that he was the beacon for my hope. He looked at me so seriously, and then he smiled. And I said, you will still do something very great and wonderful someday. Maybe you're doing it now. Your arm twitching archer. It's just a bump on the road of the creative miracle. He smiled again. And he really looked like himself too. Well... I bought him a headband for his mane, and he looks so much like he usually does during soccer season that it feels like the old archer as we create the new normal. I asked Archer to really think about what he envisions for himself and what does he look like in his vision of himself. Is he using his hands? Is he in a wheelchair? Is he on a walker? Is he walking? Running? Is he in a power chair? What does the dream look like? But this discovery, Archer will have to make for himself. And you are all part of it. Your prayers, your gratitude give him hope. 
and his belief in himself and in what is possible gives us hope. The prayers of the prayer warriors and his and our belief and his knowing you have not forgotten him and that you believe in him will guard against those vultures at the door. Disgust and disdain and chronic frustration and self-loathing. Self-compassion is so important. These tougher emotions, they really need compassion. They need acknowledgement and then an invitation or a demand to discharge. Kind of like lancing poison from a snake bite. Or they'll kill you and they'll turn you real mean away from the person you really are. So I've really been thinking a lot about all of you, our angels. I've wondered how you are. I've incorporated you into my prayers. I have felt deeply the words of the letters you write. And as it would happen, would you believe, well, of course you would, last week at Daily Mass in Baltimore, of all things, it turns out that one of the days I was in Baltimore was the Feast of the Guardian Angels. How perfect is that? While my own devotional is usually to Mary, who intercedes to God and to Jesus, I was reminded of the three archangels and how we can pray to them to continue to help us. Archangel Michael, of course, protects us from evil, a very powerful angel. Archangel Gabriel, who visited the Blessed Mother, tells us God's intentions for us, a very prophetic angel. And Archangel Raphael is there for us, especially when we are sick, giving us the life we need in our struggle a very healing angel. I was thinking about this as I listened to the words of the homily. It just came to me. Archangels. Archangels. (laughs) You are Arch's angels. You have come to our aid to protect us to help us discern God's intentions for us and to care for us in this journey. God's archangels. (laughs) Oh, the archangels are working through you, arches angels. I want to pause and give thanks to that. It's really true. Do you feel that? You are true instruments of goodness. I have felt from the beginning, as has Billy, that there must be some divine plan for Archer. We don't know what it is yet, but it is happening. I believe there is something supernatural that is happening, happening 
through the goodness of each of you. Aren't we all so blessed to have each other? I hope your goodness to us is shared with others in your life. I have heard from so many of you, and I relish those notes about how you too have turned to God in new ways. There is so much good in the world, more good than evil. I feel so blessed to know God, to know there is God who loves us all so much. I hope you feel it like we do, that you are as connected to everyone in Archer's Army as we are connected to everyone in Archer's Army, connected by prayer and wonder and holding the possibility of a creative miracle, whatever that may be. God has intentions for all of us, for you as well as for Archer. Ask him. I'm saying a special prayer to Gabriel to help us discern that. Maybe you will too. Oh, the Blessed Mother always listens as well and intercedes. I love our Mother Mary so much. She has held Archer so many nights when I felt I could not alone. Well, I want to sign off now with another thought I'd like to share. Archer has all these people who are part of his recovery. OT, occupational therapy, PT, physical therapy, ST, speech therapy, RT, respiratory therapy, and others. They're all therapies. But there is another therapy that has been perhaps the greatest contributor. What I might call FT, Friends and Family Therapy. Yep, that's it, FT. I think hospitals and rehab facilities everywhere might consider adding FT to the list of what they recommend for healing and long-term strengthening and recovery. How can anyone with a catastrophic injury like this ever fully recover without FT? We are so very, very grateful for your prayers, your kindnesses, your texts, your stories, your gifts, your love, and gratitude for FT. Let us all say amen. Amen means I believe. And we are believers. I mean, that is for sure. So do not be afraid. I go before you. I hear that beautiful psalm in my head. And I search for where it is in my heart. Where I can feel it. And really take it in. Do not be afraid. We will need every kind and expert care when we return home. 
I guess we always knew that. But it's starkly defined now if this ventilator situation continues. Please, please, Lord, give Archer's body the strength to breathe on its own. Please allow that as part of your divine mercy and the creative miracle. And please, help us to accept whatever reality we face in this moment and not to lose hope. If all of our prayer warriors and Archer's army and Archer's angels could be hopeful today for something that they may doubt, please be hopeful, whatever it is, and feel that hope in your heart. And allow that hope to fill your heart where there is no longer any room for fear. And then send us a little bit of that hopeful feeling. I know we together, you for us and we for you, have the capacity to create a new energy field where God's angels can do their work on the miracle of the body itself. Let's pause and feel that hope and know we are connected with gratitude. Amen. Oh, I'll close by sharing with you that an executive I have mediated for checked in on me, I gotta tell you this, and told me she was continuing to send prayers to Archer. I really find these texts so comforting. I don't need to respond, I know, because they are the friends and colleagues who don't expect that, because they just know. But she said to let her know if there is anything she could do, as so many of you have so generously offered. Well, feeling frisky, I texted her back, can you deliver us a miracle today? And she texted me in return, I've been short on those lately, but let me look into a few desk drawers and say a few more prayers. I thought that was funny at first. I mean, she's a Fortune 100 executive. But then it hit me. And I texted her back. That's where the miracles are found, for sure. Always there. Just lost in life's clutter. I think that's true. I so believe in miracles and know they are all around me. Like each of you, you are a miracle. Your prayers are a miracle. The words of your prayers bring about miracles. But sometimes we forget or just don't see that because of getting lost in the desk drawers of stuff or minutia. Oh, and I'm looking for anyone you might know who could contact me to help with trauma counseling and grief. Amen.
there's one other thing I wanted to share with you before we sign off of this episode. Something that I have learned since that time in 2015 that I thought I'd share with you as it speaks to what Archer was going through at the time and I think would be helpful to know for any family facing pulmonary issues after a severe traumatic injury, disease, or experience, or anyone facing panic attacks or any shortness of breath. It's about grief. We know that we all experience emotions, or we hope we do, a full range of them. Well, every emotion has a physical motion associated with it. So, emotions have energy, physical energy. And emotions happen in our bodies, not just our heads and not just our hearts. And this is exciting as we can feel the lift of a smile, the release of relief. It's also in the reverse that negative emotional energy or very tender, painful emotional energy, which is not so easily expressed like grief, can get trapped in our bodies and cause us suffering of certain organs. In ancient Chinese medicine that studies the meridians of the body and the organs in the body, grief resides in the lungs. As I turned off the light that morning and sent my family and friends update, I texted Pete. Thank you, sweetheart, for being here. You are a good brother. If you can, please hold Archer's hand and massage his fingers and tell him how much you love him. It's the best medicine there is. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. Tune in next week for our companion Blink of an Eye Trauma Healing Learning 17 when grief gets trapped in the body with Chinese medicine practitioner Thea Elijah. Thank you for listening and thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blink of an Eye Podcast is sponsored by the Blink of an Eye Nonprofit, a nonprofit created as a national resource 
to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. Blink of an Eye provides a national team of SCI-specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. Blink of an Eye also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. To donate and find out more, visit www.blinkofaneye.org or events.icthat.org. That's events.i, the letter C, T-H-A-T, dot org. <laughs>